Welcome. This is the next in our series of podcasts for current perspectives of medical aid in dying. It's my pleasure today to introduce Erica Gergerich, who has uh, got a long list of uh, introduction. She's a PhD, also a licensed clinical social worker on the faculty of New Mexico State University School of Social Work and is an expert in the New Mexico process. I believe she testified during the hearings of the New Mexico, passing the New Mexico law. Erica, welcome to our podcast. Hi, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, our audience likes to get to know folks on the podcast. So if you could give us a little bit about your background growing up, I would appreciate starting there. Sure. I, I was born in Lansing, Michigan, but my, my parents scooped me down to Arkansas very quickly as my mom took a position at the University of Arkansas. And she studies plant pathology or studied, she's retired now. My dad was animal science, which is very different from my professional trajectory, but I had two academics and grew up in that kind of a household. My dad actually stayed home with me. So he was a stay at home dad. My dad said she was the better scientist of the two of them. And so he stayed at home. I'm not sure if it was due to that, but yeah. And um, we had a pretty unique upbringing, I'd say. We didn't really have a car for the first many years of my life and didn't have a TV until much, much later. So a lot of time spent outside or walking around to the library, a lot of great neighborhood friends. So fairly peaceful upbringing in Arkansas. Fayetteville. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful place. So you, you said that your trajectory from a career standpoint was a bit different. I mean, you're obviously your doctor, there's three doctors in your family, if I'm counting correctly, at least. But how did you start to get interested in social work and in gerontology? Yeah. So I went to get my bachelor's degree at Hendricks College and ended up finding sociology to be the most interesting to me. And I actually graduated nine months pregnant with my daughter. And so after she was born, I worked as a certified nurse's aide in home care and assisted living. And eventually I looked online. I was like, what kind of career can I have where I work with older adults? And I looked at social work and even wasn't certain all the way through my program if that was what I wanted to do, but um, I did get the ability to work in uh, hospice and with a senior health clinic in my internships and was still very certain that I wanted to work with older adults and very excited to have those opportunities. So that's how I uh, launched into working with older adults. I, after working as a CNA, I was sure that was my, my happy spot. Hmm. So yeah. Erica, what is it about working with older adults that attracts you? I found that it was a slower pace. I, I know that healthcare can be very, very fast paced, but I don't know if it's because Medicare reimburses for longer um, visits or, or what the case is, but um, I was able to do my job without this breakneck pace that can often be the reality of, you know, hospitals or nursing homes. So in a senior health clinic that worked primarily with people 65 and older. There was also a movement disorders clinic and a memory center. I worked there for three or four years. And also hospice had that same sort of slower pace and home visits and just very 
intimate care, you know, so social work, our part was to really get to know the whole person and share the pertinent bits with the providers so that they had a, a clearer picture of the patient. And I really liked that. I really just felt connected with the older adult population. I like your word intimate. The, the idea of having a conversation and really taking some time to unfold and there's a tempo to it with the elderly population is very different than a hospital-based conversation, which is clipped. There's you know, another five patients waiting to be taken care of. The pace of movement of senior citizens is slower. So I understand what you're saying in terms of pace there. Yeah, and for whatever reason, I think that um, you know, insurance Medicare has uh, enabled that. And I think that other people, other populations would certainly benefit from it, but that ability is certainly allows for better care. Hmm. So along the way, uh, tell us a little bit about your early experiences with death and dying. Sure, so when I worked at the clinic, I visited a woman in her home and she had Huntington's disease. She was bed bound and writhing, just constant writhing, constant movement, and couldn't communicate, couldn't do anything for herself. And the day that I was there, she was discharged from hospice because she was going to have more than six months to live. And that was just shocking to me because she obviously needed intensive in-home care and, you know, that's what hospice can offer, but only if people have less than six months to live. And so it was really just kind of, oh, heavy, you know, what can we do to maintain or continue support for this woman? Because she's not going to die soon. Made me think of ethics and dying and living and aging. Um, and then, of course, there were people, um, the social workers were there in a number of capacities, but the doctors would often pull us for things like, um, a person learning that they need hospice care, right? So they get an, a diagnosis of six months or less to live. Okay, you're dying. Um, and then, you know, the doctor has to go on and see the next patient and kind of keep that, um, you know, momentum. But it, it feels awful I for them to just leave the room without, you know, sitting with them and letting them process, uh, ask questions and such. So that's when we would come in oftentimes. And I will say, I do have one more story related to that. Just one particular doctor um, who at least twice um, had me go in, told me outside of the room, okay, this patient is going to be on hospice, no, yada, yada. And I would go in and apparently that had not been communicated to the patient. So it would sometimes even fall on us to have those conversations um, and explain what hospice is and, and sit with the family as they sort of take in the reality that um, their life is ending. Your conversations with the elderly when they've just received a six month terminal diagnosis, which similar to the same thing as admission to hospice, how would you describe the typical reaction of the patient to that news? Well, that would vary um, quite a bit. It, it just depended, depended on their situation. Some of them knew and were prepared. Some of them might've been even relieved. We worked a lot with caregivers in that clinic and supporting people during that time. And after their loved one died, we had support groups that we ran. So it, it varied. I can speak from my own experience. I've had my own healthcare journey and it's, 
shocking. I mean, it, it the, the first time you get that information, it doesn't sink in. It doesn't, it, it takes days, weeks, months to really understand every layer of that, of that reality, I think. Would you be willing to share that journey with the audience? Absolutely. So in 2018, I was eight and a half months pregnant with my son. And my mom, I also have a mom who's been through cancer three times, breast cancer twice, melanoma once. So um, wasn't a surprise to me when I had a lump in my breast. And not just that, but I had had literally maybe eight benign tumors removed from my breasts um, over the years, just because I'd always get worried, right? Because my mom's history. Um, but this one wasn't benign. And I just thought it was breast changes due to pregnancy, because that happens. But I went in and had them check it. And, and so it turned out that it had spread and they induced my labor two days after that so that I could give birth to my son. So at least it was to a point where I could safely give birth to him. But after that, they found out that it had traveled to my bones, which is not good. But if it's going to travel anywhere, bones are not soft tissue is what I was told. So we had some hope, started chemo. And so they tried this chemo, tried that. Um, and it, it would put it at bay some, but you know, then it would come back or I would become resistant to the, the kind of chemo where the cancer would. And then they found it in my liver, one of the scans. And that's when we knew it was, it was getting bad. And it started moving really quickly, really fast. And I was having a great deal of pain, having trouble walking. And we decided to moved back to Arkansas. At the time I was in New Mexico working as an assistant professor for New Mexico State, still working there just at a distance, but we went back to Arkansas with the reality that my treatment wasn't working and um, began visiting with hospice who I knew the, all the social workers in Arkansas is where I'd practiced. And I even knew the young woman who came to visit me in my home. And um, yeah, it was, um, there's, there's nothing like um, facing that. Uh, and I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to say that I had a mastectomy and they discovered that the tumor was HER2 positive and I've been on Herceptin Progetta for three years now and I'm stable. My health is stable and I'm, I'm you know, able to take care of myself, continue my work and um, feel even more passionately about my work now because of that gained perspective and, and living this reality, I think. So. I really appreciate you sharing that story. I can hear the sadness in your voice about uh, the vulnerability that that kind of illness can create. Yeah. I think the emotion comes from reliving that, those visits with hospice and, and realizing and, and having to tell my daughter that was the hardest thing that, yeah, that was the, the hardest thing ever. To inform your daughter, how old was she at the time? She was 16, 17. Mm. Yeah. Boy. Yeah. And my son was just a baby. He had no clue. In some ways, it was just a joy to have this spirited, you know, gurgling little child who had no idea, you know, the weight of what was going on around him and, you know, all the funny things that come with kids. Really, I, 
I don't know how I might have made it through without that. But my daughter was, I mean, she was deeply impacted, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you've had the incredible wealth of experience here then. You were a professional in this area of gerontology, dealing with hospice as a professional, and then became a patient. Uh, so you've seen this from both sides of that coin. Yeah. Erica, you were involved during the time of your ongoing diagnosis was occurring uh, in the testimony in the New Mexico legislature. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, um, actually, so I was diagnosed in 2018, but in 2017, I was happy, young, excited, new professor in social work in New Mexico, new state. I was enjoying the new landscape of the desert and, and uh, exploring with my daughter. And as I had in Arkansas, served on the board of the state chapter of National Association of Social Workers. When I got to New Mexico, I joined the board of social workers in New Mexico, NASW New Mexico. And so they have this day that's called Lobby Day, and we all go up to the Capitol, up to Santa Fe. And there are a number of different bills that we go and we, uh, we're, we're guided by our lobbyist, Karen Whitlock at the time, on how to approach legislators and how to give testimony. And so they all, they all traveled up there. We went up there, we went through our training and we went to the Capitol and we all chose different bills that we were you know, interested in or had some history or experience to share in our testimony. And so I went with students to the medical aid in dying bill and then we gave testimony. We all had like shirts in the same color. And afterwards, many people have commented on how they thought that was very powerful. And I was so proud of them, but they, it did not uh, pass at that time. So that was 2017. But then in 2021, of course, mid COVID. So they weren't giving in-person testimony and not to mention I was in Arkansas and quite sick at the time. So I gave virtual testimony two or three times during the 2021 session and was so impressed by Debbie Armstrong and the work that she and her daughter did to just get us organized. It was just flawless. Um, compassion and choices had organized all of the people giving testimony and just had us very prepped. Anybody who's going to give testimony, I, I think that organization and being prepared, knowing how long you have to speak, knowing over and uh, having different perspectives shared, they just did a beautiful job. And I was so excited to be a part of that personally and professionally this time. It was very different and much more emotional for me. So yeah, and we did that virtually again because of COVID and everybody was holed up, but, and then it passed and that was just amazing. Just to remind the audience, the New Mexico law, medical aid and dying law passed last year, 2021, and they're now in the stage of implementing that law and have been able to serve, at latest count, I believe, close to 200 plus patients who have decided to take make that choice. Good for you for having made, having been part of that testimony was, and then success in the legislature. Yeah, it was really... There are so many impressive people that were a part of getting that bill put together and pushed through. I'm just, I've met some of the most intelligent and wonderful people through the process of this. So, Erica, let me ask you, what is your own personal 
belief about medical aid in dying? Sure. So I firmly supported it even before I got sick. I don't believe that what we're doing in the United States allows for everybody who should have access to medical aid in dying to have it. Um, that's a personal belief. That's not the perspective of um, some of the places that I work, but my own personal perspective is that, you know, I think of the woman with Huntington's disease, or I think of people with dementia. I worked in a memory, there was a memory clinic as well that I worked at in the senior health clinic. So I, having the ability to plan one's death or to prepare is so empowering when you have absolutely no control over the fact that your life is ending. To be able to do that in connection with the people you love and in a methodical way, it's just, it's a gift. I, I, I'm, you know, I want to have a gentle death. I want to have my people around me. I, I want that opportunity to die on my own terms. And, you know, that we can do that is amazing. It's such a gift. And, you know, I, I see other realities where people are in pain, gasping, or just in psychological agony at the end of their life at, you know, when is it going to happen or, or how, you know, gosh, liver metastases are so painful. It's a, it's a very difficult way to go. And facing that was excruciating psychologically, not just physically. Let me do say that I am physically located in Arkansas, which brings with it all sorts of implications in that in Arkansas, medical aid and dying is not legal, nor do we have any closely surrounding states for me where it is legal. So for me, that's a real challenge because I'm here to have my family support as I go through treatment. However, you know, I don't currently reside in a state. Um, I've been working at a distance, but there are very large parts of me that wants to potentially return or be physically located in New Mexico because of the law that were extended to um, to more people. But I'm, I'm happy with what we have in New Mexico for, for the time being and for myself, yeah. Yes. So what advice would you give to people who have a terminal illness and are preparing for their death? Yeah, I have prepared extensively for my own death for obvious reasons. I would say, look at it as an opportunity, a way to empower yourself in a situation that's unbelievably difficult, it can be therapeutic. Research shows that people fare better psychologically if they accept the reality that they're dying rather than deny it, right? So to accept it and plan for it, I think can be a relatively positive thing. There are very few things that can be good at the end of life, but that's something. And so to have that opportunity to tell people what they, what they mean to you is so precious and to write letters and videos, you know, I have children. So for me, that's an opportunity that, you know, I might not have if I died suddenly. <laughs> Some of the more things that you don't think about come up, like when you have that opportunity, like all the passwords to all the numerous accounts that I have, making sure that those are available to people so they're not scrambling. Because I will say that when I worked with seniors, sometimes after a person's death, 
that scrambling to, to, you know, get passwords or get to a bank account. Oh, I need a death certificate for this, that, and the other, and all the things that you have to get in place when you're grieving. I mean, it's, it's so difficult for people who are grieving to accomplish that. So to be able to do it in preparation is a wonderful thing. And end of life options, New Mexico has wonderful you know, checklists and documents for helping people, but there are many resources out there to help people consider everything that they might need to in advance. And like I said, that can give you one small piece of empowerment piece, you know, to, to know that you're setting people up for after you're gone. Well, you're very articulate here about kind of the opportunity of this, the not, not only from a pragmatic standpoint, helping in finding a bank account and internet access, but also in terms of the emotional components of having the, the opportunity to tell people that you love them and that you're going to miss them and that uh, how you feel at this point about that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with children. I mean, hospice is a wonderful service and they're so used to working with people at end of life that they know these things. I've heard beautiful stories of people who have, you know, arranged in advance for something to be gifted or shared with their children on the day they graduate or the day they get married. You know, they're not there, but they can have that planned in advance. I mean, oh, it's just gives you shivers. It's really, yeah. So we're going to conclude this podcast relatively soon, but what are some of your plans and hopes for the next couple of years of your life? Well, interestingly, I I always, my PhD is in public policy. And of course, my practice has been in gerontology. And so those two things have always been at the core of my work and research. And it's a very easy shift for me now to move into looking at medical aid and dying as a policy and how it impacts people. I think more than the quantitative numbers, I'm now interested in hearing the qualitative stories of people and their experiences, especially in these new realities for people in New Mexico. It's a very unique pocket of uh, a population in New Mexico. And so to study that is of real interest to me. I will say that for people who are dying before my health became stable, what was so salient and important to me was a sense that I had given back, that I knew that I had left the world in a positive balance and that my relationships were good and meaningful was so important to me. And so I still have that with me, even though my health is stable now. And I'm I'm interested in looking at also in in grief and bereavement for people who have a loved one who utilizes medical aid in dying. I think there are some really interesting things that we need to explore as practitioners supporting caregivers. I think that medical aid in dying is such an individual choice that we emphasize the experience of that individual. And hospice does a beautiful job of supporting the caregiver as well. And I want to make sure that in the context of hospice being used or not being used for people who are taking part in medical aid and dying that we're looking at the caregiver and making sure that they have supports as well because if you think about it there's so anticipatory grief is when people know they're dying know their loved one is dying 
and they're anticipating the grief that they'll experience after they pass already, even though the person hasn't died yet. And I think that there's some real unique difficulties for caregivers or loved ones who are with the person they love. They know they're going to die and it's going to be through medical aid and dying. There's a day, there's a time, there's a place they're going to die. And in some ways that's very beautiful. And in other ways there there are unique supports that we need to provide to the person and to the caregiver. And then also after the person has died, when the real grief sets in, some people might feel a bit of shame that their person used medical aid and dying, or, or maybe they're not ashamed, but other people might make them feel ashamed that their loved one used medical aid and dying. So maybe they don't share and communicate with people about their loss. There are just so many unique things that we really need to explore more and make sure that our social workers and care providers know the um, ideal ways to, to help and support these people. You've got a lot of energy for all of this still. I'm, and I'm really happy to hear that there's some focus on the caregiving side of this. I think those are the folks that have been kind of the last attended to in this drama of death and dying. And uh, good to hear that some perspective, some research should be spent time on, on them. I really appreciate you being willing to share your expertise public policy expertise, gerontology, social work expertise, but also your own personal vulnerability. That's a gift that you've given our audience. Thank you for that. Well, thank you to your audience for having a curiosity about the perspectives of other people. And I think that's at the core of, of what we're trying to do is understand what other people's experiences are. Yeah, Arizona End of Life Options is probably a year and a half, two years behind where New Mexico is. Our hope is in January, we're able to get a hearing on our bill mm -hmm. and ideally to pass it in this coming session. Um, and these podcasts will help our public become more educated as to the nuance and the subtlety of this law and the process. So thank you very much, Erica, for your time and your attention today. You're a wonderful mm -hmm. person. Thank you.